Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am thrilled to be in dialogue with Paul Hanna Brink. He is Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Rutgers University. Today, we will be discussing his book, In Defense of Christian Hungary, Religion, Nationalism, and Antisemitism, 1890-1944, published by Cornell University Press, 2006. Paul, it's a delight to be in dialogue with you today. Thanks very much, Jerry, for uh, for inviting me and for for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that inspired your scholarly journey? Uh, well, I'm I'm originally from St. Louis, and I would say that the uh, the, the spark of my scholarly journey, if you want to put it that way, was that um, I was an undergraduate at Columbia. Uh, I, I went there in 1990, um, and I uh, very quickly met Professor Istvan Deak, who was a tremendous um, scholar of Eastern Europe and a Hungarian. Um, and he inspired me to become interested in Eastern European history at a time when Eastern Europe was, um, in the early 1990s, very much in the news. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, under his uh, mentorship and, and sort of tutelage, I, I you know, began to learn Hungarian, began to, um, you know, study the region more in depth. And he guided me to uh, apply to different graduate schools and remained a, a close uh, friend of mine, um, you know, for for the rest of, of, of uh, you know, his life. He passed away earlier this year, which is a real loss. But um, he was the one who really inspired me down this road, I would say. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Well, I think um, to me, it's interesting that you um, that, that 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 we're talking about this book because um, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier to you before we started, um, it is my first book. It's um, a book that um, I began as my dissertation, which I you know began working on in the mid nineteen nineties and received the PhD in two thousand, and then. As these things go in academia, um, I spent some time revising it, and it first came out in two thousand six. And so, um, you know, it was it was very much a, um, uh, a, in a sense, a product of his time. I was interested in um, the legacy of the right um, in Hungary and um, the ways in which it had resurfaced after nineteen eighty nine, and um, the efforts by the left in Hungary to try to you know, contain or manage or um, overcome that legacy, um, and so it was written in a in a, in a sense, if you like, in a spirit of of optimism. This was a dark chapter, but that this was a chapter that you know maybe it was turning a page. And um, you know, since then, of course, as we know, um, you know, history has gone in a very different direction, um, both in Eastern Europe and and elsewhere too. Um, and so now in Hungary today, we have a government that's been in power for a number of years that has a you know complete stranglehold on the political system, um, and very much declares this kind of you know open allegiance to uh, the sort of Christian nationalist tropes and ideology and themes and images that um, were 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 very much alive um, in the interwar period and. 
And so I found myself in the last several years, um, in a sense, revisiting and rethinking some of the themes of this book and finding that, you know, a book that came out in 2006 is in some ways um, even more pertinent today than it might have been at the moment of its initial publication. Can you summarize your book for us? What are the key themes and arguments presented? Well, the book, um, you know, is an attempt to try to assess what was called um, in Hungary at the time, Christian national ideology or Christian nationalism. It was this um, notion that um, Hungary um, had suffered a number of, according to nationalists, um, uh, grievous catastrophes in the wake of World War I. Um, these included um, the partition of the country and the loss of some two-thirds of its territory to neighboring states. Um, also, two revolutions, the first a democratic, the second a, a Bolshevik revolution that um, you know, dramatically sort of overturned the social structure of the country. And in the wake of all of that, there were um, many conservative, many conservative nationals who uh, insisted that for Hungary to, in a sense, redeem itself, uh, to overcome these catastrophes, to right itself, to put itself back on the right track, it had to uh, embrace what they called the Christian national roots or origins of the country's culture and to sort of proclaim the country to be truly um, a Christian country um, as a way of resurrecting itself from this from this position that it found itself in. And so I was interested in in what actually this Christian nationalist ideology meant, what it actually meant in 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 um in practice, um, both about, you know, questions of religion, but also in particular what it meant to um Hungary's Jews. Uh, because it was um you could find traces and echoes of this before World War One, but it really sort of exploded afterwards, and, and it kind of coincided with a sort of dramatic um, change in the kind of uh, conditions and atmosphere in which uh, Jewish Hungarians lived in the country. So I was looking at that, and I was particularly interested in the role in which Hungary's Christian churches played in creating, sustaining developing um, this idea. And so I looked in the book at um, both the Hungarian Catholic Church, which was the largest uh, one by far, but also uh, Hungary's Protestant churches um, as well, and in particular the, um, uh, the the Calvinist Church, which was the second largest uh, Christian denomination and historically a very important one. And so the book, if you go through the chapters, is, is sort of how these religious figures um, compete with each other to try to define what Hungary as a Christian nation is going to be um, and how they try to defend what they see as their prerogatives as religious institutions over against um, secular nationalists who are very happy to use the phrase Christian but don't have a lot of time for um, questions of faith or religion or sort of organized religiosity. Since this book came out in 2006, what kinds of responses have you received? Were there any responses that surprised you? Do you think you'd have received different or similar responses if you published the book in 2023? Uh, I'd be mm -hmm. curious what your thoughts are on, on such. 
You know, it's it's a really interesting question. I mean, when it first came out, um, you know, I was um, it, it was it was very well received. There were a few, you know, more conservative um, reviewers um, inside and outside of Hungary, actually, who who read the book and felt that um, I, that my approach to anti-Semitism, um, in their view, um, underestimated the fact that 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 in fact there was some kind of Jewish question in Hungary that actually did need to, to be solved, which I, I found, you know, absolutely um ridiculous, but in a way very interesting because it was a kind of perpetuation of the logic um that I was trying to analyze in the book. Um but overall it was very it was it was very well received. I think what would be very interesting now if it were to come out um would be twofold. Um one, I think uh if if the book came out today um, in Hungary, there might be more sort of scholars closer to the government who would, you know, be critical of it, um, since there's now more of a um, a voice for that there. But also, I think very interestingly, there's a way in which um, certain kinds of, you know, conservative nationalists in this country have really looked to Viktor Orban's Hungary as a kind of, um, uh, you know, example of what a what a sort of a, a really full-throated christian nationalist politics might look like and i think there's been a lot of enthusiasm um within certain corners of, of the right in this country for the current hungarian government and the current hungarian government's policies and their ideas about christian civilization and about christian nations um and i think that um my book would have you know, if it were coming out today, would 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 be very much in a kind of engagement with that as as well, because um, it's it's equally as critical of of that kind of interpretation today as it is of um, uh, of of political events in Hungary in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. You described the history of Bela Kun's regime's rule. What kinds of cruelties and atrocities took place during the Red Terror? What lessons can the Belakun regime teach us about the nature and character of tyranny? Well, you know, the, the Belakun regime is a really interesting chapter, um, you know, in part for what happened dur during it, but also in part for the response to it afterwards. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of Christian nationalist um, ethos that I described in, in the book um, was meant to be a kind of antidote to what was seen as, um, uh, you know, a, a sort of a Jewish Bolshevik dystopia that had, uh, for a very brief time, you know, several months, um, taken over Hungary and turned it upside down. And so there were all kinds of radical right figures, but also more mainstream conservatives who who believed that Christian nationalism was necessary to undo all of the damage that Bolshevism had done. Um, you know, the, the Bolshevik regime itself um, came to power uh, in the kind of, you know, sort of chaos that, that, that engulfed Hungary in the aftermath of World War I and the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and the sort of real sort of uncertainty as to what the Hungarian state was going to look like. There was a democratic, you know, uh, regime in place in, in, you know, from the fall of 1918 on, but it was very weak. And it was especially um, 
uh, unable to defend the borders of Hungary against encroachments by neighboring states and um, also to sort of control the sort of, um, um, you know, economic unrest, both in cities and in the countryside. And in the kind of, you know, chaos of this, the, the, the Bolshevik regime came to power and, um, you know, wanted to try to sort of push through um, uh, a restructuring of Hungarian society on the, the model that they had taken from um, uh, the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. Uh, they wanted to nationalize um, uh, industries. Uh, they wanted to, you know, as best they could, collectivize agriculture. Um, there was a lot of enthusiasm for um, requisitioning um, the property and especially the homes of uh, bourgeois Hungarians and reassigning those um, apartments and um, other other sorts of forms of property to um, uh working class or lower class Hungarians. Um, there was also an openly anti-religious thrust to it, um, a sense that the churches were just simply tools of reaction and that, you know, churches could be ultimately transformed into something else, other, you know, public public centers or cultural centers or something like this. Um, and so, you know, it was it was a um, it was for a few months a kind of an idea that that Hungary could be completely reshaped um, along kind of you know secular um, Bolshevik lines, uh, and uh, you know to the degree that it was able to carry any of this out, it did so um, with force. There were these red guards that were created um, that would go, for example, to um, requisition property or to um, enforce the requisitioning of food from peasants in the countryside. Um, and the um, the efforts of those, you know, red guards or red detachments or, or, or you know, they, they had different names, um, were in themselves violent, but their violence was also then remembered afterwards and was taken as a kind of justification for the backlash that um, fell down in, in Hungary once uh, the, the Bolshevik regime collapsed. And in the wake of the collapse of the Bolshevik regime, there was a white terror that um, saw itself as being a kind of divine retribution uh, against the crimes that had been committed uh, by the Bolsheviks um, as a kind of you know, trigger for what they were doing. What is your book's contribution to Hungarian political history? Um, I think I would say that... Um, Certainly, my intention when I wrote it, and I think it still holds, is that um, I wanted to look at this book, use this book to look at the um, power that churches and that religious people had as political actors. And so I, I think it's one of the, you know, one of the sort of more serious attempts to take religion seriously as a political factor in interwar Hungarian um, political life. Um, and not just to see it as a kind of, you know, sort of cultural force that was that was sort of, you know, in masking other things, but to actually sort of take churches and church men and church people as 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 as, as consequential political actors. Um, and so, one of the things that I do in the book is to sort of look at how um, church people engage in debates about, for example, anti-Semitic laws, what kinds of justifications they use for. Um, passing them or wanting to modify them. Um, 
and also uh, for the role that they play in creating a kind of um, um, nationalist culture in the 1920s and 1930s. It was a really, um, uh, had, had very sort of strong Christian overtones in ways that um, had been absent uh, from Hungarian nationalism, I think, before World War One. What new insights does your book reveal about the white terror in Hungary? Well, I think, you know, it's it's interesting because when it, you know, there's been a lot of research recently um, in, in just the past few years on the white terror that really um, look at, you know, the social composition of who were the in these different paramilitary groups and what they thought they were doing and, and um, you know, what, what their motivations might have been. But I think that... Um, what I really tried to show was, um, I think, two things. One, the important role that certain um, figures, certain very important figures in uh, Hungary, Hungary's Christian churches uh, played in the White Terror. And the most important here is a Catholic bishop named Otokar Prohasko. And I spent a lot of time looking at his political activities. Um, so I look at them as actors, but I also think that um, one of the things that the churches did was that they were really kind of leading the way in defining the Jewish question, as they called it, the idea that Jews had had too much influence, political influence, social influence, economic influence on Hungarian life, and that it was because of this influence that um the, the 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 hungarian revolutions had happened that hungary had been unable to defend its borders that in a sense hungarian society had sort of disintegrated from within and that christian nationalism was needed to sort of overcome that um that the christian churches and, and christian figures christian writers christian intellectuals um define you know christian nationalism as a as a kind of a cultural problem to define, you know, the, the Jewish threat as a as a threat of culture. And so there's this real kind of slippage, I think, between, you know, racism, race and culture that that, you know, they 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 were very, you know, insistent all the time that, well, no, they're not racist because they um allowed for the possibility of conversion. And that, you know, conversion made it possible for Jews to become good Christians. And yet at the same time, they always insisted, um, both Catholics and Protestants, in different ways, but ultimately to the same effect, that um, Jews as a whole, as a group, as a collective, were a kind of malevolent cultural force in Hungarian society. And that this cultural force had to be contained beaten back and they had all kinds of debates about how exactly to do this but they definitely saw jews as being a kind of threat to christian culture and that idea that jews were a threat to christian culture was never expressed in terms of biological racism but it was nonetheless a very racist politics and i think that it was that that kind of blurriness around the distinction between culture and race um that that really you know left the door open for a lot of um you know much more secular anti-religious extreme rightists to kind of um pick up and and, and advance um in the years that followed who was bishop otokar prohaska why is he significant 
you know, he was, he's a really interesting figure. Um, and he's, he's someone that I, you know, I, I really think um, should be better known in terms of the, the history of, you know, Catholic intellectuals, Catholic uh, politics in, in Europe in the 20th century. He was, um, he was undeniably a brilliant man. Um, and he was someone who was, uh, you know, really interested in trying to um, uh, marry sort of the Catholic Church to certain strands within modernism. He actually really kind of welcomed, uh, you know, he was not a sort of a reactionary in the sense of trying to turn the page back to 1750 or whatever. He was very much interested in having a kind of a modern church that engaged in the modern world. Um, and he was, by all accounts, also a brilliant speaker, a brilliant orator. Um, but for him, you know, engaging in the modern world meant engaging with um, the kind of cultural threats that um, he felt um, uh, endangered uh, Christianity's important, paramount place in, in in Hungarian society, and that was above all the Jewish question. So, in, 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 you know, he actually became one of the most outspoken figures from very early on in his career in thinking about um, Jews as a threat to Christian Hungarian society. And he spoke, um, he spoke about this in the 1890s as a very young man and continued um, after uh, World War I until his death in uh, 1927, I believe it was. Um, and, and he was someone who I think really embodied uh, the point I was trying to make just a, a, few, a few seconds ago about, you know, speaking about Jews as a cultural problem, but, you know, clearly in a way in, in which culture and race kind of blurred. I mean, Prohaska was the kind of person who would say, yes, he knew some converted Jews who had converted Catholicism. And so this proved the point that, you know, it was not a kind of a biological absolute, but he nonetheless felt that Jews as a force, and he spoke about this and wrote about this, you know, in, in, you know, even, you know, using the term race, but in a kind of very cultural way, not in a biological way, um, that they were, uh, you know, a, a, a real threat to Hungarian society. He, he talked a lot about, um, for example, at the end of World War One, the attempt by Jews to turn Hungary into a Jewish country, and it works better in Hungarian because the 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 word for Hungary in, in, in Hungarian is Magyar Orstag, which would be sort of the country of the Hungarians. And he said they're trying to turn it into the country of the Jews or a Zido Orstag. Um, so, you know, he definitely had the sense that Jews and Hungarians were very clearly distinct groups. And um, he, you know, because he spoke in this very, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, vitriolic way about um the Jewish threat to Hungarian culture, and especially the the the, the impact that Jews had had on uh, creating the Bolshevik Revolution, um, he, he became a kind of uh, you know icon uh, for other groups on the extreme right, many of which had nothing to do with the church at all. Um, you know, incipient fra fascist parties, um, and they looked to him as a kind of uh, thought leader. Um, and they did so uh, long after he, he was dead as well. And, you know, Prohaska remained a kind of uh, a totemic figure on the extreme right into the 1930s and into the, uh, into the early 1940s as well. Um, so his, you know, I think his, his role for making this kind of very extreme Christian nationalism slash anti-Semitism a kind of um, legitimate form of political discourse really can't be... Um, overestimated 
Um, and that's even if we also acknowledge that, you know, in, in other ways, he was a very transformative figure in the Hungarian Catholic Church and a sort of, a, you know, interested in modernizing the church in many ways. Um, it all kind of went together for him. And, and so for, for me, he's one of the most um, interesting, one of the most dynamic, but also one of the most, um, um, you know, leaving, leaving sort of the darkest legacy of the figures that I look at in the book. What role did the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism play in Hungary? Ah, well, now we get to a sort of a huge, a huge question um, because um, it's something that that the uh, it was actually it was actually because I was so interested in 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 how this played out in Hungary in the interwar period that I then you know embarked on um, researching and writing a, a a second book which came out more recently on the question of Judeo-Bolshevism um, across Europe in the 20th century. Uh, but in Hungary, um, the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism was, um, I guess, first and foremost, a kind of a scapegoating, right? So you, you have to sort of, you know, picture this, that, you know, Hungary was um, a society that had been um, accustomed before World War One to been one half of a large empire and the uh, territorial extent of the Kingdom of Hungary was... Um, Fairly large. It included parts of what are today Romania, parts of what it, and all of what is today Slovakia, parts of what is what what is um, today Serbian, also Croatia. Um, and uh, after World War One, a vast amount of this territory was lost, over two thirds, uh, to neighboring states. And so there was, you know, all of these sort of refugees coming in from different parts of the of the former Hungarian territories into what had became what the Hungarians called rump Hungary and what is today the much smaller country of Hungary. Um, and then on, on top of this, there was all of this political upheaval um, and especially the sort of this Bolshevik experiment that was, you know, a short lived attempt to sort of radically reimagine what Hungary, you know, what Hungarian society was and what Hungary's place in the world should be. Um, and in the aftermath of that, um, there was this argument that was made that, you know, Jews had benefited from the liberal regime that had governed Hungary for decades before um, World War One, and that under the liberal regime, Jews had gained rights and they had gained um, uh, any, you know, economic uh, advancements, social advancements. And that during World War One, Jews had used this position to, in a sense, shirk their responsibility to fight for the nation, um, and instead to uh, harbor their power, uh, which they then tried to use in 1919 to take over Hungary and to create a kind of Jewish-dominated country that would be Bolshevik, led by Bela Kun and led by a number of other um, uh, Bolshevik revolutionaries, and because so many of them, including Bela Kun, did happen to come from uh, Jewish backgrounds, um, this seemed to be a kind of self-evident, you know, sort of argument that Jews had been responsible for the revolution. Um, and so uh, the idea that the Hungarian Bolshevik revolution was a kind of Jewish plot then authorized all kinds of anti-Semitic um, legislation, anti-Semitic uh, discrimination in the decades that followed because 
um, every nationalist who is in favor of anti-Semitic legislation would say, well, the thing that we want to avoid is another Bolshevik revolution. Um, and so Judeo-Bolshevism became like the argument, the sort of the, the, the authorization for um, a lot of the anti-Semitic legislation that, that paved the way ultimately for the Holocaust in Hungary in 1944. Can you tell us about the Jesuit Bela Banka? What did his book, they, The Reconstruction of Hungary and Christianity, say and signify? Can you describe the contents of the book? Yeah. yeah. No, he's a, he's another really interesting figure. He's a Jesuit father, Bela Banga. And um, he wrote this book in 1920, sort of at the same time that this this white terror was unfolding and, and there was, a, you know, these armed detachments who were um who were uh roaming the countryside basically identifying anybody whom they thought was a kind of political or social enemy working class activists labor union leaders and also jews um and in that kind of climate uh bela bonga writes this um this book um the, you know the, the 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 reconstruction of christian hungary um and in it he talks about how only Christianity and specifically only Catholic Christianity. He's very, he's very insistent that it isn't a kind of a watered down Christianity he's talking about. He's really talking about Catholicism. Um, only Catholicism can redeem Hungary from the depths to which what he calls the Jewish spirit um, had brought it. And so he very much identifies, you know, the Jewish spirit as this cultural force that had undermined Hungary, and it was it was one of these books that was, um, or one of these writings. There were several others at the same time by different people writing from different directions. Um, they really kind of crystallized this um, anti-Semitic moment and this idea that you know, regenerating Hungarian nationalism on this kind of Christian nationalist basis um, was also going to be centrally about um, an opposition to any manifestation of what was called the Jewish spirit. So it was a, it was an argument in first and foremost for the importance of the Catholic Church in basically leading Hungarian society back to itself, back to its true Christian national roots. Now, what's really interesting about Bela Bonga is that he 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 lives longer. I think he lives until 1941, um, if I remember correctly. And um, he then has a very interesting kind of trajectory in the 1930s. On the one hand. Um, I think it's safe to say he remains an anti-Semite um, in, in the sense that he uh, remains convinced that um, Judaism and, and what he continues to call the Jewish spirit is um, a hostile force arrayed against um, Christianity and against the Catholic Church and that for um, a society truly to be Christian, it had to somehow contain this 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 just Jewishness in society. So he talks a lot about that, writes about it, continues to write about the Jewish question into the 1930s. Um, but he is also, and this has to be said for him, a very um, avowedly an anti-fascist figure by the late 1930s and at the very end of his life. He is very concerned about the rise of Nazi Germany. He's very concerned about Nazi Germany as a sort of a secular totalitarian state that is infringing on the power of the church. He's very concerned about the influence of Nazi Germany in Hungarian society. And so, you know, he's a good example of one of these figures. You, you know, there are more of them, I think, than we often acknowledge um, in the 1930s and the early 1940s in wartime Europe of someone who can be both, I think it's safe to say, an anti-Semite, 
but also an anti-fascist at the same time, or an anti-Nazi at the same time. What was the Catholic Action Organization? What role did it play in Hungarian politics? Well, you know, Catholic Action was something that um, was um, an initiative that, that, that didn't, you know, start in Hungary by any means. It comes out of, you know, um, the, you know the, the Catholic Church all across Europe, and it was an attempt um, on the part of um, the Catholic Church to mobilize Catholics um, to engage in civil society, um, to be actors in um, the civil societies of their country, uh, but to do it under the kind of supervision and guidance of the Catholic Church so that um, Catholic participation in civil society wouldn't, in a sense, go off in directions that the church didn't approve. And so it was a it was a way of both sort of you know mobilizing but also controlling um, the attempts by Catholics and the very sincere desires by Catholics to want to take part in mass um, plural, mass pluralistic societies you know, across Europe. And so you know Catholic action um, was you know had sort of you know large demonstrations. It had you know um, rallies. It had you know uh, different kinds of um, associations. There were uh, associated with it, you know sort of youth groups and men's groups and women's groups and and, and these kinds of things. Um, and it was, you know, an expression of the sense that for, you know, for Catholics to uh, determine the 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 shape uh, and the the direction of the countries in which they were living, the societies in which they were living, they would have to be politically active and socially active. Um, and you know, that in itself could take any number of forms. I mean, you know, different times and different places, Catholic act could you know be an umbrella for things that we might call um you know left of center perhaps um uh, uh initiatives um very often in interwar europe it was it was definitely right of center um it was much more conservative um and so in you know catholic action groups in hungary uh, um reflected the sort of larger discussion within uh Hungarian society that, uh, and within the Hungarian Catholic Church, that that um, in order to really rebuild Hungary from the depths to which it had sunk, um, that there needed to be a kind of robust uh, Christian participation in society, and that Christians needed to, in a sense, come to dominate a culture that they felt had been too much and too long dominated by secular and Jewish, and for many of them, those two words were interchangeable, secular Jewish forces that had dominated the media, had dominated, um, um, you know, society more generally, and that, you know, it was up to Catholics mobilized uh, together to to set a new tone and to create a new stamp, if you like. What was the Association of Awakening Magyars? Can you say more about this body? Yeah. I mean that that's a really interesting group as well. You know, the um in the aftermath of World War One there were a lot of paramilitary groups that were created, um, that, that sort of sprang into being. Um often, you know, um staffed or or formed mainly among um former officers, um, you know, who felt um out of place um in the new Hungary and 
these were extreme right, extreme nationalistic groups that um, insisted on um, recapturing all of the territory that had been lost. It was an irredentist group that wanted to sort of, you know, expand the borders back to pre World War One uh, dimensions. Um, but it also wanted to publish uh, punish all of the enemies um, whom they identified as being hostile to the resurrection of Christian Hungary or the redemption of Christian Hungary as they understood it. Um, and so they were all virulently anti-Semitic and the Association of the Awakening Magyars was one of these groups. Um, and they were, if I can refer back to, to what I was saying earlier about Bishop Prohasco, they were one of these groups that you know, I think we would have no problem calling racist. I mean, they 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 were not at all interested in biology. They had no ideas about genetics or anything like this or eugenics. Um, but they definitely understood Jews as a threat to kind of civilization and to um, national culture. And so it was again under the rubric of culture that they uh, developed a, a racist politics that. Um, you know, really sort of shaped and paved the ground for um, later extreme right-wing groups to build upon across the 1920s and 1930s. And the Association of Awakening Majors was, you know, one of these groups that did look to Bishop Prohasco as a kind of, you know, icon. Um, and, and there was definitely a lot of overlap in what they were saying, especially in the years, critical years of 1920, 1921. Um, and then the Association of Awakening Majors became one of these extreme right groups that uh, were sort of the seedbeds for um, later parties and formations and movements that we would call fascist um, in the 1930s. Can you tell us about Giula Sekfu's book? three generations and what came afterwards how yeah. was it received by readers why was it important in the context of its time and why is it significant uh you i mean it's it's a significant book because Yula Sekfu's he was um the the towering figure of hungarian historiography um in the interwar period he was the leading the main figure uh of, of among Hungarian historians, and um, in nineteen twenty, in this kind of atmosphere, um, in which, if you you know, we talked a few minutes ago about you know Father Belabonga writing his book about the reconstruction of Christian Hungary. There were a lot of people in Hungary trying to sort of write books saying what had gone wrong, how had Hungary lost so much territory, how had it lost the war, how did how had it had these revolutions. How had a society that had seemed so stable before World War One seemed to sort of dissolve overnight? Um, and Dula Sekfu's in this book, Three Generations of What Came Afterwards, um, advanced this idea that the problem was that Hungarian liberalism, um, which had started out as a kind of revolutionary emancipatory uh, force that had, you know, inspired Hungarians to uh, fight the revolution uh, of 1848 against the Habsburg Empire, had over the decades of followed deteriorated. Um, and it had deteriorated at the same time that uh, Jews had assimilated into Hungarian society. And so he, you know, made the kind of kind of close correlation between the sort of destructive powers of liberalism and the rise of um, Jewish influence in Hungary or Jewish social influence in Hungarian society. 
Um, and, you know, when it came out in the 1920s, it was very much, you know, understood and read and taken to be a kind of, you know, another sort of signal that he was one of the leading intellectual lights of the country, um, uh, in a sense, saying that the, the reason Hungary was in the situation it was in was because of Jews. Um, and it, it, it was, you know, yet one more sort of intellectual authorization or intellectual rationalization of the need for, um, you know, anti-Semitic uh, policies, anti-Semitic politics. Um, in 1920, there was, um, I believe it's Europe's first post-World War One anti-Semitic law uh, was in Hungary, it was a law that um, restricted the number of Jews who could enroll in universities. It was called a numerous clauses. It basically set a cap on the, on the, on the, number of percentage of Jews who could be in any sort of an admitted class in universities with the idea that this would over time reduce the number of Jews in the professional middle classes who were you know understood to be the the the, the leading forces in Hungarian society and so this book by Sekri was was a, a kind of you know a rationale that people could turn to and point to and look to um, to 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 justify those kinds of policies, you know, Sekfu himself is one of these people who, you know, who, in a way like Bonga, um, you know, really takes on a different kind of role as we move into the 1930s, nearly 1940s. He was, um, again, very concerned about the um, influence that Nazi Germany came to have in Hungarian society, and 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 was very much active in in anti-Nazi circles uh, in the 1940s um, in ways that were very commendable and laudable and brave. Uh, but it doesn't take away from the fact that in 1920, this book definitely had a real impact on public discussion uh, and public debate um, uh, in Hungary. And, and because of his intellectual and professional eminence as the country's leading historian. How does your book advance our understanding of the Holocaust? What is your book's contribution to Holocaust studies? Um, I would say that um, the book is, I think, one of the um, an important sort of fine-grained analysis of the role that um, Christian churches, not just Catholic, um, which is what usually gets most of the attention in these kinds of discussions, but Catholic and Protestant played in um, laying the groundwork for some of the political processes and political formations that made the Holocaust in Hungary possible. And what I mean by that is that, um, you know, if we think about the the, the Holocaust in Hungary, um, and, and especially, you know, what happened in 1944 after the Germans um, occupied the country, it's pretty clear that without substantial um, Hungarian cooperation, uh, the Holocaust in Hungary in 1944 simply wouldn't have happened. Um, and so the question then is, where does this cooperation come from and what makes it seem okay to people? Um, and I'm really fascinated by, one of the things I really wanted to try to look at is that, you know, on the one hand, um, Hungary's Christian churches were, you know, concerned about um, anti-Semitic laws being um, too broad stroked that they, you know, didn't allow for the possibility that, you know, for example, converts might behave differently than 
Jews who had uh, not converted to Christianity and that therefore there needed to be all kinds of nuances and that maybe, you know, some sort of the dr draconian anti-Semitic legislation that the far right was proposing was a little too extreme. So there were all of these kinds of, you know, they, they were uncomfortable with certain things and they criticized certain aspects of it, but um, they helped to create a certain kind of consensus around um, this kind of slippage or this blurry line between um, Jews as a cultural threat and Jews as a racial threat. The Jews were a threat to the Christian civilization that had produced Hungarian uh, nationhood. That's, I think, a proposition that even into the 1940s, the vast majority of Hungary's Christian leadership could have um, subscribed to, even as they were concerned about um, fascism being sort of anti-Christian, anti-church, anti-organized religion. They were concerned about all of that, but they definitely believed that, um, you know, Christian civilization had come under threat and that Jews were very much um, uh, part of the problem, part of, part of the group to blame for that. And because of that, it creates this kind of um, consensus or a kind of possibility in which, um, you know, more extreme figures um, can say, okay, well, if that's the case, let's do, let's talk about things like deportations. Let's, let's, let's talk about policies um, that will, you know, remove Jews from Hungary permanently. And, um, you know, then for all of their sort of moral qualms of conscience, and I, I think in 1944, we can definitely find all kinds of evidence that church leaders were troubled by what they saw as the deportation trains, um, you know, left Hungary with with Jews um, on board, uh, headed for Auschwitz. Nonetheless, they had no sort of political, no sort of discursive, no sort of intellectual um, grounds on which to really criticize it because they had become so invested and they'd been so invested for since since um, the end of World War One and this idea that Hungary was a Christian society and that Jews as a cultural force. Um, had been a threat to that um, that understanding of, of, of Hungary's Christian nationhood. And I think looking at that kind of dynamic and that kind of nuance, um, a, you know, in, 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 in terms of the, the role that the church played in shaping um, ideology, uh, nationalist ideology in Hungary, is I think, um, I'm not saying I'm the only person to do it, but I think it's 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 an important contribution to understanding um, the role that the church has played in the Holocaust in a kind of broader context, and not just in terms of trying to study um, which church figures hid Jews, which did not, um, which is also, of course, very important, but I think is much more narrow in its focus. Can you comment on the legacy and memory of Hungary's 1848 revolution during World War II and during the Holocaust in Hungary? What did this yeah. event mean to Hungarians one century later? Well, the the group that it meant the most to, of course, were Hungarian Jews, um, because you know, eighteen forty eight had been Hungarian Jews uh, had embraced the memory of the revolution of eighteen forty eight as a way of expressing their commitment to. Um, Hungarian national culture and, and a kind of true Hungarian Jewish identity. Um, Zionism was historically weak um, in Hungary and was um, until after World War II. Um, 
despite the fact that Theodor Herzl was was born in Budapest. Nonetheless, there was very little support for uh, or enthusiasm for Zionism. The, uh, the vast majority of, of, of Hungary's Jews really embraced the sense that they were um, they were Hungarian um, and that um, the ideals of national emancipation, of uh, national freedom, national liberation went hand in hand with um, equality, um, religious equality, social equality, went hand in hand with the assimilation of Jews, the acculturation of Jews into Hungarian society. And so, you know, one of the things it's 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 they're they're heartbreaking documents to read, but they they can't, you know, they're 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 very powerful to read nonetheless. Um, is that, you know, from you know, mo in moments of extreme anti-Semitic mobilization or anti-Semitic violence immediately after World War One, then again in the 1930s, going into the 1940s. There's, you know, there. If you read uh, mainstream Hungarian Jewish newspapers, there's there's quite a lot of discussion of, well, this is not who we are. This is not who what Hungary really is. This is not who Hungarians really are. What Hungary really is is the Revolution of 1848. Hungary is really that 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 revolutionary society that embraced um, enlightenment, emancipation, uh, assimilation. Uh, liberation, uh, national freedom, um, and that all of this sort of Christian nationalist counter-revolutionary uh, political thrust in the 1920s and 1930s was a was a was in a sense a detour from from what the the the, the Hungarian, Hungarian nation was really meant to be. And you know the tragedy is that so many Hungarian Jews um, really clung to this idea. Um, you know, even uh, as laws were passed, and then in 1944, even as uh, deportation trains, um, you know, uh, began to roll to Auschwitz, there was this sense that no, you know, um, the revolution of 1848 symbolized what the best of what Hungary was, and that's that vision is 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 what what people wanted to um, you know put all their, uh, invest all of their faith in. So for that reason, I think that alone, I would say the Hungarian Revolution of, of 1848 has this powerful effect, um, positive and negative, in 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 um, in in in, in, in uh, political life in the 1920s and 1930s. For the far right, of course, they they felt that you know that that whatever um, uh, sort of nationalist energies were unleashed in 1848, that it was the the, the liberalism. That followed from it was had had led Hungary down a dark path, and that uh, Hungary had to renounce um, its liberal past in order to, in a sense, redeem itself. And so they ended up looking to much older sort of historical myths that involved um, the Christian founding of the state in the year, you know, around the year one thousand by um, uh, King uh, Stephen or Istvan. Um, or you know, so other far right figures look to sort of the arrival of the Hungarian tribes in Europe and this kind of like pagan mythology. Um, so they really sort of you know wanted to sort of shove to the side this this um, liberal uh, legacy of eighteen forty eight and look to these much older um, historical periods that could be mobilized for um, anti liberal or illiberal politics. What do you mean by the term redemptive violence? You know, redemptive violence is it's it's um it's an interesting idea, and I, I you know I have it from um you know 
cultural anthropologists talk a lot about, you know, the, the ways in which different societies understand uh, violence or can come to understand violence as, as, as having a kind of a cleansing or a purifying power. Um, and in this, I mean, I, I think that um, Christian nationalism in its most extreme forms immediately after World War One, and then among the sort of most extreme uh, far-right figures in, in the 1940s, um, was understood to be a redemption um, of the nation that in order for Hungary to regain its footing as a society and to rebuild itself from its um, humiliation um, after World War I, it had to, in a sense, cleanse or purify itself. And the way to do this was to remove or to combat the Jewish spirit in Hungarian society. Now, what did that mean? That meant a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, for some people, it just meant writing, you know, anti-Semitic screeds in newspapers, and that was all that they ever intended to do. Um, but for others, it meant physical violence. It meant um, attacking Jews, and there were, um, you know, uh, attacks on Jews in the aftermath of um, the Bolshevik uh, regime during the White Terror, and then there were again, um, you know open persecution of Jews, especially in the late 1930s, early 1940s, as the government began to pass a number of anti-Semitic laws. Um, and then, of course, in 1944, during the deportations, there was a sense that actual physical violence to Jews was necessary to cleanse or purify the country. So violence could have this redemptive possibility that a Christian, a true Christian nation could be um, could be made and could be made again. That was sort of like looking to the future and looking to the past at the same time. Um, insofar as the threats to it um, could be neutralized. Um, and so in that sense, uh, you know, violence was understood to have a kind of redemptive possibility because Christian nationalism was ultimately a um, redemptive ideology. It was an ideology about redeeming a society that, um, um, had fallen low and needed to be raised high. Can you tell us about the history and evolution of the Arrow Cross Party in Hungary? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a really um, critical um, uh, group. It's it's you know it it is it is one of Hungary's fascist parties in the 1930s, and it quickly becomes the largest um, by far. Um, although it's not the only extreme right party and not the only extreme right formation in Hungary, there are actually a variety of them, and they're sort of divided by social class. Um, there are some far right groups that um, draw mainly from more upper class people and are considered to be sort of more respectable. Um, the Aerocross Party is really has this kind of lower middle class um, quality that that many of in Hungary's elites sort of look down on as being sort of. Um, Kind of a rabble, rabble rousing, um, but which you know gather draws a, a lot of support um, uh, throughout the country from uh, from people who felt you know um, that uh, uh, Hungary's um, economic structure um, you know disadvantaged them um, uh, grievously, and that and that you know only through sort of the embrace of, of sort of a true fascist organization could this be rectified. So. The the fascist party was, um, you know, it did very very well in the re last reasonably 
an open election that, that Hungary had in 1939, had, had a lot of support. Um, and um, it was, you know, uh, a, a force that was, you know, like some of the other far-right parties, um, absolutely anti-Semitic, um, openly uh, wanting to emulate uh, the Nazi party in Germany in terms of the organization of state power, in terms of the organization of society. Um, and then um, when the Germans occupy the country in 1944, in March of 1944, they, they reshape the government and they make it very pro-Nazi, but they don't immediately put the arrow cross in power. They instead put in, or they allow to come into power um, far-right figures who were much more mainstream. And so the arrow cross remains a kind of, you know, fascist opposition, um, even uh, in the first months of the Nazi occupation. It was only in the very end of the war, in October of 1944, that um, the um, when the Hungarian government tried to, you know, extricate itself from its long-term alliance with Nazi Germany and the the Nazis got wind of this and they you know engineered a kind of a coup and they they put the fascists um, in power and then the arrow cross had in the last months of the war this kind of free reign and during that time um, they controlled mostly uh, Budapest but some other parts of the country as well they sort of were wildly violent um, against uh, Jews in the Budapest ghetto there were you know sort of um, you know, open harassment in the streets. Jews were hauled out of their homes. They were shot into the Danube River. It was this sort of this, you know, horrific carnival of violence in the last months of the war as the Soviet um, army was approaching. And so um, at the very end of the war, when, the, you know, when it was over and then in, in the years that followed when the communists took, took power, um, what was really very interesting is that the arrow cross became the symbol of fascism in Hungary because it had been the largest party, but also because it had played this, you know, role in this chaotic final period of the war. Even though um, the 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 arrow cross was by no means the only sort of far right or extreme right formation in Hungarian society, nonetheless they became the kind of emblem of it. Um, and so, and then I think that 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 remains to today. And I know that you're interested in the in the um, in the House of Terror. If you go to the House of Terror Museum in Budapest, um, and it's been some years since I've been there, but I, I don't I haven't read that it's changed its um, um, you know uh, permanent exhibition in, a, in, in any mm -hmm. meaningful way um, here. Um, the, the 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 fascist group. Um, or the, the emblem of, of fascism that that is seen as being a counterweight to um, to to communism is the arrow cross. So if you go in, you sort of you learn about the arrow cross, which you know remember was you know only running the government for the last months of the war, um, and then you learn about the long history of communism, and it doesn't say anything at all about the or as much less about the. Um, the the role that the larger society in the 1920s and 1930s played in creating and mobilizing anti-Semitic discourse and sort of laying the groundwork for the deportations and the role that different social groups played in the Holocaust it really sort of focuses on um, the Arrow Cross and um, that fascist party you know which was certainly a party of fascist thugs you know violent anti-Semitic um, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the tr tr truly, you know, destructive force in Hungarian life, but it focuses on that to the exclusion of anything else and sort of sets it up, sets up its brief reign of terror uh, as a kind of bookend to, you know, the 40 plus years of communist rule that came after. Um, and so you then come away because the Aerocross regime is just so much shorter than the communist regime, you end up coming out of that um, that that uh, museum with the impression that by far um, the greatest um, sin, or by by far the the, the greatest um, uh, uh, enemy of of you know uh, of Hungary had been the the, the Communist Party, and, and and not in fact a kind of more you know nuanced examination of what led in fact to the Holocaust. Um, uh, in Hungary, and what forces um, led to such widespread support for, um, for example, the expropriation of Jewish property and the redistribution of Jewish property, which um, was then, of course, never returned after after 1945 to uh, the former owners. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Yeah. Well, as I said, um, you know, once this book was finished, um, I I published, uh, I I began working on, you know, for a number of years on this notion of Judeo Bolshevism and of um, the association of Jews with Bolshevism, um, which was so much a part of anti-communist, um, anti-revolutionary politics, not only in Hungary but in other places, um, in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, it was actually critical to the to, to to Nazi ideology. It was critical also to uh the interwar Polish right. Uh and it really shapes the kind of memory of especially also the Holocaust today in many parts of Eastern Europe. And so I spent a lot of time working on um the different manifestations of Judeo-Bolshevism as a kind of an ideological force and the way it, what it crystallized and what it meant to different people at different times throughout the 20th century. Um, and that book um you know, uh, came out in, in 2018. Uh, it's called The Spectre Haunting Europe. Um, and it's it's definitely one of those books that follows from um, the kinds of issues that we've been talking about today for the last hour. Thank you for bringing this book and your subsequent book into fruition for the benefit of humanity. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you. It was my honor and my privilege. Thank you. Thanks. As, as we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm Ari Barbalat your host today on the New Books and Genocide Studies podcast. Today I've been in dialogue with Paul Hannabrink. He is Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. We've been discussing his book, In Defense of Christian Hungary, Religion, Nationalism, and Antisemitism, 1890-1944, published by Cornell University Press, 2006. Thank you.